we wait? <laughs> Please stand for the reading of God's word and get back to your seat. Esther 6, 1 through 11. Is this on? Can you hear me? That night the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this, the king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. The king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he had set up for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, For the man the king delights to honor, have him bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Luke 14, 7 through 11. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, Friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The Gospel of our Lord. Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know that the Apostle Paul, in one of his letters to Timothy, gives him some instruction, and then he says, reflect on these things, and the Lord will give you insight into all of them. He also tells the Philippians, if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. It's an awful lot of confidence and God's continuous, active meddling 
with mercy into our understanding. So we give you a moment before the preaching of the word to ask God, to invite him, to say, I suspect there are things that you could say to me that would be good news, that would, that would cause reversal in me, that would cause hope to well up within me, that would cause me to want you more. And so we give you a chance to say, Lord, will you say something to me? Will you make something clear to me? Will you give me something helpful? Because guess what? He knows what you need right now. And guess who does it? Me. Take a moment. Oh, sovereign Lord, the early church prayed, stretch out your hand to heal and to work wonders. And hear these precious people that you have been unwilling to neglect as they offer up the desires of their hearts to you. Well, Lord, I thank you that there are perceptive men and women made so by you who could say things like, if I weren't a Christian, you have no idea how horrible I would be. I suspect without supernatural aid, I would barely be human. I thank you for the thought that we've been able to adopt as our own that we who believe in you are not mere men and women. We are in Godded. We are dwelling places of the Holy Spirit who takes from what is yours and makes it known to us so that we may understand what has been freely given to us. Lord, you know how many things we misunderstand. You know how the, the deficits of love in us, the, the craving for the approval of others in us, twist the way we hear things. They put us in a defensive posture. You know how discouraged we get because we hope and we hope and we hope and it doesn't turn out like we wanted. And so we're just bringing that and our sin and our expectation, we're bringing it all to you right now and saying, come. Oh, Lord, who can cause a sleepless night to turn a whole story around. Turn our stories around. Bring reversal today to us. Revive us where we are flagging. Renew us where we are weary. Activate us where we are slovenly. Heal us where we are hurting. We look to you whose word will not return void to help us. And Lord, I need your help. Will you make me competent as a minister of your new covenant? And would you be pleased because of your immense adoration of these dear ones before me to spread through me everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of
of you. Oh, come Holy Spirit, we invite you. And so badly do we need you. In Jesus' name, amen. We are preaching through Esther because I lost a bet. Each week, no. Each week I come with some sort of apology, maybe unnecessary, but I find it difficult to figure out the best way to preach through Esther, but we're trying it and we're doing it and we're making our way through. I think this is the fourth or fifth sermon in Esther. But one of the reasons we're preaching in Esther is because it's in the Bible. And another reason that we're preaching through Esther is because I'm wanting to put the Apostle Paul to the test. And he says in Romans chapter 15 that everything, everything that was written in the past, and by that he does not mean, you know, a punch list for a Sumerian sub suburban home. He means the scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament, what he would call the Bible. He was writing the footnotes. Everything that was written in the past was written so that through endurance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. He thought that these stories of God's intervention, these stories conveying God's persistence, his cleverness, how he can harness the events of human history, even when it seems like only evil is happening and only injustice is happening, how he can take all of these elements from the pantry of the world and throw them into the pot of his sovereign intention and out can come a stew that will nourish the world and bring it salvation. It don't matter what gets thrown in the pot. He can make it into something else. And so we're told that this could be encouraging for us. This could mean endurance for us. This could be electrolytes for dehydrated and weary souls. But it's also the kind of story that is of interest to me because it is a story where God is not mentioned. And in that respect, it's a story like life in the Western world where all the major things of our lives do not take God into account as a primary cause or as a primary consideration, neither our education nor our governmental practices, neither our sexuality nor our econ economics, our education, none of it. I just said education twice. Our, 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 uh, med our medical establishment, that's what I meant that all of these things are configured in such a way that it is easy to live as if God does not exist. These are the times we're in. And here we have a story where God's people are scattered among a people who do not believe in the one true God. They are not loyal to him. They do not listen to him. They do not pay heed to him. And yet he's paying heed. And yet he's being watchful. And yet Though he does not get named, and though no one explicitly prays, and though there is no temple worship, the people of God who are the recipients and the beneficiaries of a long-suffering, tenacious affection from God are kept by him. And the same holds true today. 
previously on Stranger Things. We're in chapter 6, which is what Eve just ably read, but we're going to jump back just a tad bit to make sure you understand what's going on. And as I said last week and say, each week you are allowed to read this by yourself. It stands ready for you in your Bible app or in a Bible on the shelf, and it's there in the Old Testament, and you can look up a concordance if you don't know where. And you can read this and no one will get mad. You can read ahead even. You can read it twice. But when last we met, Haman, this erratic, praise-loving, narcissistic dude who's been made second in command to King Xerxes, this ruler over a vast Persian empire, has persuaded King Xerxes, who is able to miss almost everything that is important, to extinguish the Jews. And the reason for this edict that he gets posted throughout the whole empire, which has caused great sadness to Mordecai, the Jew, who's Esther's kind of like dad, a cousin, uncle, something, he raised her. The reason is because Haman was promoted to second in command and Mordecai the Jew will not give him the time of day and it infuriates him. So he comes to the king and says, hey, there's a group of people, they're the Jews, they have weird customs, they have a weird God, they don't listen to you, they flout your authority, they are not good news for the kingdom. I have a simple idea. Let's just destroy all of them and let's take all their stuff. King Xerxes needs almost no prodding. He says, great, what time do we eat? And they have a meal. They go to the Golden Corral and they drink from the chocolate fountain. Gorge themselves on roast beef and the beer that Corby was brining his wings in. No, they don't, they don't drink cheap beer. They drink the kind you guys drink. You people don't drink cheap beer. I don't know you. Mordecai knows there's one escape hatch. Esther's on the inside. Esther, he says. You got to make yourself known. You got to tell him you're a Jew. You got to go to the king and you got to plead for your people. You got to enter the king's presence and plead for mercy for your people. And she says, You know, if I do that, I'm going to likely die. That's what happens. He's an erratic dude. There's a rule. Mordecai says, Hey, God is going to rescue his people one way or another. And it may just be the case that you've been made so lovely and you've been ripped out of your home. And you've been forced to be with this horrible man in this horrible situation because you might just be the instrument. And so she agrees. But she asks, after he has just said, who knows, maybe you were here for such a time as this. She says, with large, all caps, pray, y'all, pray. Get everybody praying. She's not a sorority girl old miss, but you know. She says, tell everybody to fast throughout the kingdom. 
She doesn't actually explicitly say pray, but she is urging a humbling to God. Now, so on the third day, Esther puts on her royal robe. So on this third day, the third day, there, somebody ought to make a band of this, name this. Um, third day is a thing that pops up in the Bible sometimes, you know. You might have heard of it in Easter and all. But it comes up with Abraham as well. On the third day is when he's about to have to sacrifice Isaac in the, in the beginning of the provision of Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. A lamb comes suddenly so that his son doesn't have to be sacrificed, but a provision is made for sacrifice on the third day. In the story of the people of God, it's told on the third day he will revive us. He has torn us to pieces on these two days, but on the third day, he will revive us. And so here on this third day, salvation starts to happen. Preceding this, though, I want to call your attention to something. Mordecai has told Esther in this ambiguous moment where he's not sure what's going to happen, and she's not sure it's going to happen, only that it's very treacherous. There has been a very real edict that no one has any reason to imagine won't happen, that all the Jews are going to be killed. And he has said, who knows? Maybe God's put you here so that you can be their release. You can be their rescue. And she calls for a fast. She calls for humbling for three days. I only want to point out to you, because I don't know if Presbyterian people think about this very much, but throughout the scriptures, there are numerous times, not, well, not so many numerous, but several times, where this expression, who knows, pops up. Maybe you can think of them, maybe if you're a biblical scholar. There's a time when King David has taken Bathsheba from Uriah. He kills him. God is very displeased. And God says, the fruit of your union will die because of your sin, David. And that baby is born, that baby's born sick. And David, though he has been told for punishment that that baby is going to die, because of his sin, he fasts, and he prays, and he cries out to God for seven days while the baby's still alive. And then the baby dies. It's horrible. It's lamentable and tragic and heartbreaking. And David gets up, and he washes his face, and he comes to eat, and they're like, what are you doing? And he says this, while the baby was still alive, I thought, who knows? Who knows? Maybe God will respond in mercy because that's what he does. He had been told that judgment was coming, that there was no escape hatch. He didn't, was told no escape hatch, but yet he thought, if I respond in humility, if I respond by crying out to him, if I humble myself before him, he might just relent. It didn't happen in that time. There was a dude named Jonah. You might have seen Veggie Tales. It was told this great kingdom, this militaristic, mighty nation, the Assyrians, and the capital of Nineveh, is such a wicked people. And he was told to go and preach against them. Forty more days and the city of Nineveh will be overturned. He had a PA system and everything. No escape hatch offered. No fine print delivered. But the king hears 
the threat of God's judgment and says, oh, my word, he's right. He should judge us. And he calls for your kittens to fast. He calls for new puppies in the shield home to fast. He calls for the turtle in your aquarium to fast. He calls for everybody, high and low, rich and poor, and even your animals, to fast. And he says, who knows? Who knows? We've been threatened with judgment, which we deserve. Who knows? But if we humble ourselves, he might just relent and show us compassion. And what does God do? He ticks off Jonah. Just like a younger brother who set up his older brother to get in trouble perfectly. And then he does it. He's furious because God, God often issues threats of judgment, which he does not hope to keep. Do you believe that? God issues threats of judgment to people, which he does not hope to keep just like good parents. I've said this to you before, but I want you to have it in your head because the threats in the scriptures, the judgment threats in the scriptures can be averted when people respond to them. Just like when you tell your kids, if you do not come to supper, you cannot go to game. If you don't clean your room, you're not going to be able to go out on Saturday night. You don't say that because you don't want them to go to the game or don't want them to go out on Saturday night. You say that so that they will respond to you because you want them to eat supper with you. So you issue in a threat that you do not hope to keep. You can read about this in Jeremiah 18. God says, this is how I like to work. I can promise you something good and take it away because you just don't listen to me anymore, a nation. I can say something bad's coming in the nation, can, can repent, and I say, hey, mercy, mercy, mercy everywhere. Esther, in that tradition, has called for responsiveness. We are in dire need, and she knows. The people of God have always known, and you, the people of God today, need to know that God listens to people when they humble themselves before him. When individuals do, when the people of God do, when they cry out to him honestly, when they repent of their sins, when they, they come clean with him as much as they are able, they say, I'm sorry. I can't do this. I don't know what to do. And they cry out. God is responsive. He hears the cries of the anguished. He gives grace to the humble. He exalts those who are bowed down. That is not picked up on. I haven't heard commentators talk about that so much. But that is something that happens before the whole turning point of the story. When Esther goes into the king on the third day. When resuscitation and reversal begins and she finds favor with the king, she's finally identified herself as people of God. For the first time in the story, she has taken up her place. She's not hiding out. She's not pretending not to be a God person anymore. Now she's one of the Jews. And then she clothes herself with courage and puts on her royal robes. She goes into the king's presence. And somehow or another, this erratic king, who for all we know could have he could have eaten something bad and been in a bad mood and wanted to kill her. He did that. He dis disposed of his previous wife. But when he saw Esther, he was pleased with her. Because the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he will. And so Esther finds favor with the king. He extends his royal scepter. She places her hand on it and he says, what do you want, darling? 
anything up to half the kingdom. You know, this gets offered in the New Testament, and John the Baptist loses his head over it. Literally, it's terrible. She says, I've got, got a banquet for you and Haman, and I'll tell you there. Well, Xerxes never needs more than a second when somebody says, let's eat. And there's liquor there, too. We've got a whiskey bar for you. So they go. He says it again with Haman, Xerxes, and Queen Esther. What is it? Up to half my kingdom. I'll give you whatever you want. What's your request? She says, hey, if you're really, really pleased with me, she's playing a long game here. She's got a long night of poker. And she says, tomorrow. If you're really pleased, come back tomorrow and I'll make my request then. Oh, the suspense must be driving them nuts. Wouldn't you be driven nuts? Does anybody ever call you like, hey, man, I need to meet with you. Uh, I need to meet with you in two weeks on Thursday at 1130 and talk about something really important. You're like, heavens to Betsy, man. Are you kidding me? Like, are you going to tell me that you're going to kill me? Are you tell me that you hate me? Are you tell me something's wrong? Are you tell me something's good? Like, can you give me a hint if you're going to make me wait for two weeks? So Haman is on cloud nine. He's come to, he's had this exclusive feast with the president, you know, and his wife only. He's skipping. He's joyful. He's got a little move in his hips. But then he sees Mordecai. And Mordecai reminds me of a big dog and Haman like a little yappy dog. I've seen this play out because I have the little yappy dog and I have a big dog. But the little yappy dog wants to act so big and barks and barks and barks. And the big dog like opens up one eye and looks at the little yappy dog and then just goes back to sleep. You are not worthy of my attention. You do not frighten me. You do not cause a reaction in me. In fact, in your presence, I can sleep as soundly as if you were not there. And it drives the little dog crazy. And Haman cannot abide the fact. He is filled with rage that Mordecai neither rises in his presence nor shows fear in his presence because he's second in command. But he restrains himself and he says, I, I, I'm waiting my turn, waiting my turn, waiting my turn. And he goes home and he does what any good person does when they are feeling very insecure. He sends out a tweet to the whole world. No, he gathers his friends. He posts something new on Instagram to see if he can get some fast likes. Nobody's done that. He calls his friends. He calls his wife. And then you do what you do when you're feeling really low and little. What do you do? You start patting yourself a little bit. He starts boasting about how much money he's got. He pulls out his bank statements. You know, before the market downturn. Brokerage accounts. His Bitcoin holdings. Look at this. You see how much money I've got? He's trying to build himself up again because his whole sense of self, his whole sense of self, and this ought to sound familiar to us, depends on the evaluation of other people. And as a result of that, when his whole sense of self depends on the evaluation of other people, when you don't get the evaluation of other people that you want, you cannot function. When he doesn't get the honor that he craves, he's a nervous wreck and he's angry and he's filled with rage. C.S. Lewis said that anger is the love that juice bleeds when you cut it. I'll say that again. Anger is the love, is the juice. <laughs> anger is the love that juice bleeds when you cut it. And when your self-love 
What? Did I say it backwards? I'm on a lot of medication. <laughs> no. Mucinex D is all, and cough medicine. Who knows what I said? When you have self-love and it gets injured, it bleeds anger. Whatever how I said it, that's what it meant. <laughs> and so sometimes when we're angry, when we're angry that we have not been well cared for, we have not been praised or appreciated, someone has not esteemed us as we want, then we get very angry. That anger can turn inward and we can get sullen. What's wrong? Nothing. Nothing. Nothing's wrong. Oh, you, okay. Why, are you, why is your head doing that? Or the anger can be an outrageous thing. You can express outward. But in either case, he's living for the praise of men. But he boasts about what he's got. He's boasting about his special privileges. And his wife and friends say, well, honey, why don't you just build a large pole and jab him with it? Just like a fish through a metal reel. And Mordecai is so, oh, honey, you're sexy homicidal mind. It's so lovely. You get me. Thank you for your empathic connection to my rage. Ah! You always know how to help me hate other people together better. And so he's relieved. He's got a plan. He's going to destroy his enemy because he thinks that will heal him. But that night, the king cannot sleep. Is he wondering what she's going to say? Is he nervous? Is he nervous about Haman? Why? I don't know. Why can't it? Do you, I bet if we took a poll in here, you'd be surprised at how many people in here had trouble sleeping last night. You think it's just something, you young parents, I'm sorry to tell you, you think later I'm going to be able to sleep better? Sorry, you're not. Because something will keep happening. I don't know why. I don't know what it is. The modern world is arrayed against people wanting to sleep. It'll be your dog, it'll be your neighbor's dog, it'll be some funny noise in the house, it'll be someone in your family, it'll be something physiological, it'll be something psychological, it'll just be something. So congratulations, the hardest thing in your life is going to become at some point just sleeping, just releasing. It says something about how much control you need to. The king can't sleep. So he says, will you read the IRS tax code to me, please? He doesn't ask for a John Grisham novel. He's careful not to read his iPad. He doesn't want the blue light to sort of be a catalyst for all sort of jumpiness in his mind. But he asks for the, the, the minutes of his reign. He knows that'll get him back to sleep. And it just so happens as he's being read through all these occurrences and happenings in his kingdom that it's brought to his mind again that there was someone who should have been honored, but they weren't that Mordecai had saved his life from a conspiracy to kill him. And they wrote down he was to be honored, but he was never honored. They honored Haman instead. And so for five years, Mordecai has saved the king's life, said he was honored, and nothing happened for him. Five years. That's not an, in, you know, that's not an insignificant amount of time. And it just so happens that the eager Haman is already outside the door. He's gotten there really early. Got some crystal biscuits and coffee real early in the morning, brought him in. 
king says, who's out there? And they say, it's Haman. Bring him in. And the king says, what should I do for the man that the king delights to honor? And Haman wants to start weeping. He's like, okay, okay, okay. Act like you haven't thought about this. You'll think I'm talking about He is sure that the king is talking about him. So he says, I know what you can do. Let him identify with you. Clothe him in your royal robe. Bring out one of them horses of yours. Not the, not, the, not the racing horses, you know, that we bet on. One of them royal ones with the crest on the nose and everything. And then have one of your noble princes clothe him in front of everybody and walk him around the city. And I'll get the PA system. We can say, this is what the king does for the one that he honors. This is what the king does for the one he delights to honor. And King Xerxes thinks, that is a fabulous idea. Mordecai, how about you make that happen? And it just so happens because God is choreographing coincidences everywhere and making turns, reversals. that Mordecai had come in to ask that this man be killed, and now Mordecai is down, down, I'm sorry. Haman has just asked that Mordecai be killed. These names are hard to remember for me sometimes. Haman has just come in to ask that Mordecai be killed, and Haman is going to leave with a punctured soul because he's going to have to lead the praise and honor of the man who is his enemy. And it's the beginning of his downfall. Now, I've given you some things to think about. We're closing with this. This turning point of the reversal in the story happens when there are no human actors. It's just a man who cannot sleep. And God, in the night when no one else is there, causes him to remember something that's mighty important that starts turning the whole story on its head. See, God is not, as Karen Joe said, just going to maintain the status quo. He could just say, stop it, don't kill the Jews. But that's not what shadowed and overpowered with the Most High and it's going to be giving birth to the one who would save her people from their sins. The rich have been sent away empty-handed and those who are on the ash heap have been exalted. It's a complete reversal that the arrogant are being leveled and the humble are going to be raised. And God is the one who is making this happen, though he does not get the credit, though he does not get mentioned. And it's happening through the actions of the people around. But on this night, a reversal happens because he just won't let a man sleep. Sleep, we're told, fled from him. On the third day, when Esther comes in, redemption and reversal starts. We're told on the third day that Jesus started a new thing where death itself starts working backwards and new life emerges. We are a people who sometimes cannot sleep when we are a people who sometimes find ourselves dishonored. 
We are a people who find ourselves not receiving what we thought we should and not seeing the realization of promises that we had longed to realize. We're people who do what is wrong, who want what is not good, who crave what cannot soothe us. But Jesus tells the Pharisees when they love the praise of men more than the praise of God, he says the two are counteracting. They can't happen. They're mutually exclusive. And he gives us this realization that Mordecai experiences in real time, that Esther experiences in real time as they are elevated in their humility, that he really does raise up those who are bowed down, that he really does show grace to the humble. He really does lift up those who are falling on the floor. And it's a great comfort for those of you, for all of you, no matter if you know Christ or you do not, to relate to God in this way, that you can come into him at any time. You can come to him in any condition and simply empty yourself. And say, death has overcome me, please raise me to life. Weariness has overcome me, please revive me on this third day. He has torn us to pieces, says Hosea. But he will revive us. He will restore us so that we may live in his presence. Only let us return to him. The promise for Christian and non-Christian alike is that Jesus Christ offers new life and immediate help. And the offer is always, come humble yourself. Empty yourself before me. Entrust yourself to me and I will raise you up. The only thing you have to be to be resurrected is dead. God loves to revive, to help to rescue, to forgive. And he loves to find empty hands who are willing to receive it. What does the king delight to do to those he honors? How does he want to honor us? Well, we're told that one day, inexplicably, in C.S. Lewis' words, we shall be ingredients in the divine happiness. That the craving you have for approval and support, God will give to you. Let us start looking for it now and believing that there will one day be a healing when he looks at you and he says, oh, welcome home. Well done, my good and faithful son. And you'll think, I wasn't so faithful. And he would say, but I'm quite merciful. Amen.